Now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 2 and verse 6. I'm sorry, Josh, yes, Judges, sorry. You could turn to Joshua, but that would not be where I'm reading from, so thank you, John. Judges, chapter 2, verse 6. And you remember we said this book has a double introduction. So one introduction goes from the beginning uh, to chapter 2, verse 5. And then it kind of starts over again at verse 6, taking us back to the end of Judges or Joshua and picking up from there. And uh, we said on this second introduction, which runs down to chapter 3, verse 6, that you get a, a theological perspective on what's going on in this book. And so uh, the last time, a couple weeks ago, we looked at um, verses 6 to 15, and uh, this time we'll focus more on the second half of this second introduction, but I want to read the whole thing for us to get the context, and this will set the stage as hopefully, Lord willing, we'll get on to more of a routine and get making some progress through this book. So beginning at Judges chapter 2 verse 6. This is the word of God. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Herez in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord." They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. 
so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only uh, though, so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath, and they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. And there will, in the reading of God's word, may God bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. Well, last week, uh, Jane and I had the pleasure of building a piece of Ikea furniture. And I don't know if you've ever done that. All the parts came in three boxes, and um, there were these directions. And the directions don't have any words, really. It's all just pictures uh, showing you step-by-step how to build the piece of furniture. And since I uh, never actually went to the store, I've never been to an Ikea, and hopefully it'll stay that way, uh, I did not know what, what it was that we were making and, um, and so it was very helpful to get the one picture uh, that showed what the finished product was supposed to look like before we started the step-by-step instructions. And it was, so it was helpful for us to know, no, we're not making a bed, we're not making a table, uh, we're not making a bench, we're not making bookshelves, we are making a hutch. And uh, we could see this, this hutch with a glass part on the top and a wood part on the bottom so that once we got into the step-by-step, we were like a well-oiled machine. We knew what the final product was going to be. We knew what was going on, and we worked. And, and this is a helpful way to think about what we have just read in the book of Judges. What we have just been given is a little picture of the end product, what's happening, the diagram that we need to follow, so that when we get into the book and we're looking at specific judges and personalities and enemies and people, we don't lose sight of the bigger picture of what God is doing. And this is so helpful for you and for me as well. You see, the people who had been were living in the midst of this situation in the book of Judges, they might be tempted to say to themselves by looking at what's in front of them, well, God clearly doesn't know what he's doing here. Uh, the God who brought us out of Egypt, he, he must have left us because of uh, all that was going on around them looked like chaos in their lives. And uh, this is an opportunity to step back and to say, no, this may look like chaos to you on the ground, 
But God is really at work and there is really a plan going on. And that's why I say this is an important message for each one of us. Because it's tempting for you and for me to look at our lives and to say this is just chaos. This doesn't make any sense. God's either not interested, he's not paying attention, or he's not able, or he doesn't know what to do. We're tempted to think things like that. Because we can't see the bigger picture. And by stepping back a little and giving us the bigger picture here, uh, the the passage is reminding you that God is at work, despite what things may look like in your immediate situation. And so that's the main point as we look at the text. This is in uh, the outline that's in your bulletin. In the chaos of life, remember this essential truth. You and I deserve God's anger, but instead we see God relentlessly extending his grace to us through his son. And that's what we see in this passage. And children, if you want to draw a picture, um, maybe divide your, your page into two parts. And on uh, the one half, I want you to draw a picture of a judge as we think of a judge, maybe a person uh, with a dark robe who sits uh, in front of everybody and makes decisions. And then I want you to listen because in this book of the Bible, a judge has a very different meaning and you can draw a second picture of the kind of judge that we're talking about here in this passage. Now, if you'd like to follow along, there is an outline and some cross-references in the bulletin. The first thing I want us to see is that in the chaos of life, it is tempting to question what God is doing. Uh, Once we get into the details of this book, and those of you who have read the book of Judges know that there is a lot of chaos uh, that is coming, and and things that are frankly disturbing and and head-scratching and all the rest of it. This is what happens when every person does what is right in his or her own eyes, as we're told, rather than following the Lord. And it's easy to think from this that, well, this is all just a chaotic, uh, meaningless thing that's happening when people disobey God. But this introduction is, is meant to show you, no, God is at work. There is a pattern here. So let's just refresh ourselves. In verses 6 and following, Uh, In chapter 2, we're told about Joshua and his generation, the the group that that came into the promised land and conquered their enemies and established their presence in the land. And these people die. They die in honor. They're buried within their inheritance. And they go out, a generation who was faithful. And then we see that the next generation, in verse 11, that followed on, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They were idol worshipers. And so as a result, God sent their enemies to harass them. In verse 14, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers. And so then these plunderers have their way with Israel. And then the people of Israel uh, cry out. They groan in great distress because the hand of the Lord is against them. At the end of verse 15, they're uh, greatly distressed. And then what do we see in verse 16? God raises up these judges, these judges that come and bring deliverance. And so children, this is what your second picture should show. 
A judge in the Bible is not uh, somebody who sits in the court and makes decisions about who's guilty and who's innocent, but who is a leader, a deliverer, a military person who comes to lead the nation and to save them and to help them fight against their enemies. And so that's the second picture that you should draw, this kind of judge that God raises up to save his people. Now we're told in verse 17 that they don't listen uh, to their judges that are sent to them. And in verse 19 that after the judge uh, dies, they quickly turn away and revert to their former ways. And, And in fact, it's not just they revert to their former ways, they're even worse than before. And this, this cycle is repeated over and over again in the book of Judges. And I put a little figure in the, in the bulletin under the cross references to show you this. I put it on my notes much larger than it is in your notes so I can actually read what it says. It may be in too small of a font for you. But you see there, Israel serves the Lord. Then Israel falls into sin and idolatry. Then Israel is enslaved. Then Israel cries out to the Lord. Then God raises up a judge and Israel is delivered. And then Israel serves the Lord for a time and then turns away again. And this cycle keeps repeating itself, except it's not actually a nice, perfect cycle throughout the book of Judges. Uh, Lawson Younger there speaking about this says, each successive generation experiences a greater degeneration in sin and corruption than the previous one. Thus, the picture is not just cyclical, but downward. Israel is spiraling down into a spiritual abyss. And and this will come out very clearly as we move through the book. We're moving around in this cycle, but we're also moving down into greater degeneration. But the thing to notice is that at every step in this cycle, God is the one who is at work. So God is the one who delivers them up to their enemies in verse 14. God is the one who sells them into bondage in verse 14. God is is the one whose hand is against them in verse 15. God is the one who raises up the judges in verse 16 and 18. So the, the text emphasizes, although the people are sinning, God's action throughout this cycle. So what I want you to see is what could look bleak and totally chaotic is actually something that is over the, over, under the oversight of God and that God is at work throughout this process. One Old Testament scholar uh, likens this introduction to dissecting a worm. And uh, you children, I know some of you have done dissections in your biology class, in your studies, and uh, you get the, the animal and it's, it's uh, preserved in some nasty smelling uh, chemical and you get it out and you pin it down and you cut it open. And I have to say of all the uh, things that you could dissect, the worm dissection is probably the worst one because you're trying to cut open a worm and it it's mostly seems like it's just mush anyway. And you're trying to pin back uh, the cuticle, you know, so you can look at the parts in there. And so you, you tell yourself, yes, I'm seeing, uh, the, you know, I'm seeing the digestive system, I'm seeing this and that one. Honestly, it looks just like mud in there. Um, and that's why uh, your teacher, and I know for a, n- a number of you, your teacher is your mom, gave you a diagram at the beginning. 
and said, see, this is what the inside of the worm looks like. And so then when you get into the actual nitty gritty, uh, there's actually some reference point telling you what it all means. And, and that's what we have going on in this section of the book. It's going to be very much like dissecting a worm. And yet here we have a diagram, this cycle that's going on, and it's showing us that God is at work throughout. And isn't this so much like our lives? Our lives can be messy and stinky and disorganized and unappealing at times. That our lives can look like they're just, we're just spinning our wheels uh, and, and nothing's going anywhere. And we can be tempted to think that God has abandoned us and yet God is there and God is working out his plan and it's a tremendous blessing to see that and to recognize that. So in the chaos of life, be careful of the temptation to question whether God is at work. Secondly, we, we need to see here, and as a starting point for understanding and interpreting what's going on in our lives, remember that the only thing you deserve is God's anger. If, if we could really grasp this truth, it would help us tremendously with our perspective when things are looking messy in our lives. The reason things look messy is not due to God's failings or God's inability uh, to deliver these people. It has to do with their sin. It's their own failings which have caused this situation. This is why this cycle is necessary. These people have turned away from their covenant God. And I gave you a couple of examples where the people throughout their history had sworn their allegiance to God. At Mount Sinai, Moses sprinkles blood on the people and says, here's God's, here's God's law, are we going to do it? And what do the people say in Exodus 24, verse 3? All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. They commit themselves under a blood oath to obey God. And then we have later, after the conquest, the same thing happens. Joshua, at the end of the book of Joshua, who are you going to serve? That's that famous part where Joshua says, as for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. Who are you going to serve? And the people all cry out. And they say, uh, we are witnesses. We're going to serve the Lord. And Joshua says, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord God we will serve and his voice we will obey. And this, these people come knowing all of this and yet they turn their backs on the God who had saved them. In verse 11 and 12, we're told they did evil, they served Baal, they forsook the Lord, they followed other gods, they provoked the Lord to anger. At the end of this passage in verses five and six of chapter three, they married and mixed in amongst the pagans that they were supposed to remove from their land. And even when God sent deliverers, these judges, to help them, in verse 17 it said they turned quickly away from the way in which their fathers walked. They did not listen to the judges. And again in verse 19, after a judge had delivered them, they would turn again away and do their own thing. That's why in verse 20 it says, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel because this nation has transgressed my covenant, 
God had committed himself to them and they had committed themselves to him and yet they were not walking in his ways. As commentator Barry Webb says, in the judges period, Israel was characterized by sheer, mind-boggling, willful persistence in self-destructive rebellion. And how easy is it for us to say, well, thank the Lord, that doesn't describe me. When in actual fact, it does describe you and me perfectly. And that apart from God's grace, we are dead in our sins. We are walking the other way. We are burdened and lost and separated from God who says to us, there is no one who is righteous, no not one. And we sang this in, ver- in uh, Psalm 7 just a little bit earlier. God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. And left to ourselves, that is who you and me are. We are the wicked. We don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We do not love our neighbor as ourselves. And God is angry with the wicked. Apart from his grace, that's where all of us are. And if you cannot grasp that, you will not begin to be able to live a mature Christian life in the world. Because you will live thinking God owes you certain things, that other people owe you certain things. And the starting point is to remember the only thing that God owes you and me is his anger because we have disobeyed him and we have gone our own way. And that's sobering, but that's an important starting point. But thirdly, we see in spite of what you deserve, God relentlessly extends his grace to you. The children, this sermon is about grace. And grace means getting something good when you deserve something bad. In its simplest definition. You deserve God's anger. And God pours out his love and his kindness to you. That's what God does. And the many ways that he does this in this passage are fascinating. The first one is simply the fact that in his anger, in verses 14 and 15... He delivers them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies. Now, that may not seem gracious to you, but you realize that if God had just left them alone, that would have been terrifying. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give up on them. He sends trouble into their lives to get their attention because he loves them, because they are his people. He's actually showing grace to them because he doesn't just let them wander off and become pagans. He frustrates their plans to be pagans. Children, if if you're bad and your parents do not punish you, that's really not a good thing for you. Now, we all admit, sometimes as parents, we're tired, we can be lazy, we we don't follow through like we should, but in general, we try, and we try to do that because we love you. 
And, and having a response when you're bad that maybe makes you uncomfortable for a while is a good thing because it's a way for you to learn and to grow and to be more like Christ. And here we see in God's incredible grace that he will not let you get comfortable in your sin. He's going to make it difficult. Remember God promised at the very beginning when Adam and Eve turned away, I will put enmity between your seed, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. That was gracious. Keeping God's people from ever being very comfortable in their sin, moving away from God. Hebrews 12 uh, speaks about this. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Part of the evidence that we are children of God is that when we turn away from him, he won't let us go, but he brings difficulty into our lives to get our attention. Now understand, this doesn't mean that all suffering that we're experiencing is a result of sin or is in some way a punishment. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that when we turn away, one of the things God graciously does is to complicate our lives to bring us back. We also see God's grace here, more, maybe more obviously, in the fact that he does send these judges in verse 16, nevertheless, despite the fact that they've turned from him, God raises up judges who deliver them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And it says in verse 18 that God was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. And so this is the idea that the judge and children, you may modify your picture maybe once again, uh, the judge is a military leader, but one who is leading the people toward God. Uh, verse 17 implies that they were teaching the people. It says the people didn't listen, but that that was part of their function too, was to teach the people and to show them how to serve God and how to be faithful. And notice that God does this continuously. God is doing this over and over and over again. He's sending judges to deliver them. He's doing this over a long, long period of time, over 300 years, in fact. Uh, commentator Barry Webb, speaking about this, says he raised up judges to save them again and again. It was grace that went the distance, grace that outlasted disappointment and betrayal and saved again and again and again. What a picture of God's relentless grace for his people. And why did God do it? Why? Why was he doing it? He wasn't doing it because at each phase they repented, got their lives together, and then were worthy of his intervention. Ralph Davis, speaking about this, says, here's the fundamental miracle of the Bible, that the God who rightly casts us down to the ground should, without reasons, stoop to lift us up. Now, when he says without reasons, he means without reasons in us, right? He has his reasons. It's not arbitrary, but the reasons aren't because we have figured things out and that we have gotten our lives together. No, in verse 18, it says, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those 
who oppress them and harass them. It's God's compassion, not their repentance, that causes him to act because they are his people. That term groaning is only used a few places in scripture. And the other places are in the book of Exodus. I put one of the examples from Exodus 2, verses 24 and 25 in your bulletin. So God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. This is the idea. They're crying out in anguish. They're not repenting of their sin, but God sees them in their suffering. He's moved to compassion because they are his children. It's because he's a covenant-keeping God and he has made them his own. And this is what God has done for each one of you if you are one of his children. He has relentlessly poured out his grace upon you when you deserved his anger. Romans 5, 6, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. God did not wait for you to get your life turned around and cleaned up before God worked in your life. He came to you in your sin and saved you. That's grace. That's the grace that you have been given. Think about what grace we have received. That God has chosen you from before the foundation of the world. That God has loved you. That God has forgiven you. He's justified you so that you're righteous in his sight. He's adopted you and made you part of his family. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit. He's preserved you eternally, and he is perfecting you and will glorify you when Christ comes again. And God says he will never let you go. And don't you and I experience this grace every day because God just keeps forgiving us, and he keeps bearing with us, and he keeps loving us despite the fact that we sin against him every day of our lives. And he won't let us go. This is the grace of God in spite of what we deserve. And in his grace, fourthly, we see that God tests and purifies our weak faith. So we further see here how God works with these people. In verse 21, he says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. He told them, remove these people completely from you, and they didn't do it. And so what we have here is what the parenting gurus call natural consequences. Children, You have a nice bike. You know your parents tell you to put the bike in the garage at the end of the day. You leave the bike out on the sidewalk or in the yard. Mom and dad might say, oh, you act like you don't want to have a bike. 
Therefore, we will treat you like you don't have a bike, and you lose the use of your bike for some amount of time. That's natural consequences. You want to act like you don't have a bike? Okay, we'll act like you don't have a bike. We'll put the bike away. That's exactly what God is doing here. You want to live among the pagans? You don't want to do what I said? Fine, we'll live among the pagans. You'll get exactly what you want, and they will be a frustration to you every day of your life because you wanted to do it your way. So it makes total sense. But again, it's not just punishment. God is gracious in what he is doing. It says three times in these verses that he's doing this to prove or to test their faith. And that word that that translated in my translation, test, could be translated prove or to purify. He's trying to uh, show them that living in a world where you're surrounded by people disobeying God, this is a way to refine and to strengthen our faith. That if we learn to obey in the midst of people who are not obeying, we actually will have a stronger faith. Furthermore, he says that he is teaching them through this. In in chapter 3, verse 1, now these are the nations with the Lord left behind, that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Now, we, what, what's going on here? Remember, the, the, the first generation fought all the battles. They saw God's deliverance, and they knew God. And now the, the subsequent generations, they're living on easy street, They have all that's been given to them by the previous generation. They don't know war. They don't know what it is like to struggle. And so part of what's going on in these cycles is God is graciously testing them, teaching them, showing them what it is like to live out the faith in the midst of opposition. And and it's challenging, but this this is a gift of God. Uh, We sang from Psalm 11 at the beginning of the service. Listen to verses 4 and 5. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. This is a sign of God's grace and love, that he tests your faith, that he puts you in situations that are difficult that he allows you to learn to experience war in the sense of what is it like to fight for the faith, to contend in a world that's hostile to the faith. Again, this is a profound insight. We look at the world, we look at the church in the world today, and we see how weak and ineffective and small the church is. We look at individual Christians And we see how often, how pathetic we are and how we follow God. We look at our own lives, we see how often we fail, how often we are proud and critical of others and unloving and enamored with the world. And we think, well, God's not doing his job. Why is the church so small? Why is our faith so weak? But what's going on? God is teaching you to know war. How else are you going to learn to fight sin in your life if you're not in a culture that's sinful? How is your faith going to be tested 
and proved if you're not contending for the faith in a world that's hostile to the faith. I know we, we all want it, we, we want the whole world converted. We, we, this is not what we want. But understand, this is in itself a sign of God's grace. You live in a fallen world surrounded by enemies of God, and partly this is so that you will be purified in your faith and that you will learn to obey him when no one around you is doing that. And this was a gracious act of God. In his grace, God tests and purifies your faith. So finally, look to Jesus, the source of God's outrageous grace, and know that God is, in fact, at work. The book is messy. The introduction is showing us that. But it's reminding us that throughout all of this, God is the actor. God is the one who raised up judges for his people. And this was the only hope that those people had. Matthew Henry, speaking about this, said, The God of infinite mercy took pity on them in their distresses, though they had brought themselves into them by their own sin and folly. And God wrought deliverance for them. And Matthew Henry goes on to point out that God did not deliver them by sending an angel to intervene on their behalf or by sending a foreign power, you know, an ally to come in and to deliver them, but that God raised up a judge right from among them, one of their own. And do you see that your only hope is the fact that God has raised up a judge, a perfect judge who came from heaven and yet was a human being, in a sense from, from right among us. The Lord Jesus came. And, and in, in this book we're reminded that the judges that God raised up, even the best ones died and the people reverted after they died. And in Jesus Christ, you have a judge whose death is no impediment because it was actually through his death that he secured his victory. And he rose again from the dead, never to die again. And because we have an eternally living Lord who stands as our deliverer and our savior, we don't have to worry about falling apart again after his time is done. He is an eternal judge who comes and fights your battles for you and delivers you from your enemies and takes away your sin and gives you eternal life. Jesus is the source of God's outrageous grace. Can you imagine that? One of the commentators said, in effect, you can't make this stuff up. No one would invent a God like this who comes and dies himself for his rebellious creatures. And yet that's exactly what God did. And so you and I need to look to Jesus and be saved. Look to him and live every day. Look to him and know that despite what may look like chaos in your life, he is at work. He's at work in the world. He's at work in the church. And he's at work in your life. 
So in the chaos of life, remember this essential truth. You and I deserve God's anger, but instead he relentlessly extends his grace to you through his son. Let's pray and give him thanks for that. Heavenly Father, it's really hard for us to grasp the depth of your mercy and grace towards sinners. And our first impulse in reading this text is to wag our finger at these terrible people who kept sinning against you. Lord, please help us to remember that all the time we're wagging our finger, we're just, we're just pointing it at ourselves. And that the real story here isn't the sin of the people, it's the persevering grace of God who will not give his people up, who works with them over centuries, who sends them a perfect judge and deliverer. Lord, help us to trust in Jesus and in faith in Jesus, we pray for your help in living as we should in the world, as your people trusting you, obeying you. We thank you that you test and prove our faith. It's weak. We want it to be stronger. Please do your good work in our lives that we would trust you more and that we would be more faithful. How we thank you for your grace to us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. And now let's sing our praise back to the Lord from Psalm 103. We'll sing selection B of Psalm 103. This is a psalm where we praise God for his deliverance and for his salvation. And in fact, the psalm reflects on the fact that God is so gracious that he remembers to forget our sins. It says he's put them as far away from us as the east is from the west so that we can have uh, joy in him. Like the pity of a father has the Lord's compassion been. Let's stand and sing our praise to the Lord.